Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. About 60,000 years ago, a man, identical to us in all important genetic respects, lived in Africa. Every person alive today is descended from him. This is known because of the secrets of human evolution that are hidden in our genetic code. In this edition of Radio Curious, we will visit with geneticist Spencer Wells, author of The Journey of Man, The Genetic Odyssey, which is a book and a film. We will discuss the secrets of our ancestors that are hidden in our genetic code and how the developments in the science of population genetics have made it possible to create a family tree for the whole of humanity. I spoke with Dr. Wells during one of his recent visits to the United States and asked him to begin by describing the methods he used to trace how the human species spread from South Central Africa around the world. We study markers of descent. These are tiny little single nucleotide or single letter changes in the DNA that occur naturally as a result of copying that DNA every generation. What do you mean occur naturally? Well, they just happened as a result of the process of copying. DNA is a fairly large molecule in every cell in your body or almost every cell. You're carrying around 3 billion letters worth of DNA. You have to copy all of those when you have a child, when you pass on your DNA to the next generation. And because of that, even though the cellular machinery for copying is very, very careful, you do occasionally make mistakes. Those mistakes are called mutations. When they're passed on to the next generation, they become markers of descent. They show that you are related to some individual in the past where the mutation first occurred. Would people have a mutation that you can't readily see? Yeah, the markers that we study, the results of these mutation events, as far as we know, have no phenotypic consequences, which means that you can't see any evidence on a person's body just by looking at them of the presence of these changes. They're simply markers of descent. They are genealogical tools, for lack of a better term. So when you identify those markers, what do you do with the identification? Let's say we have found a set of markers. The first thing we want to do is look at the distribution of these variable positions. And this is what we mean when we say genetic diversity. It comes down to these single nucleotide changes at the DNA level. We want to look at the distribution of that diversity in populations all over the world. And from the distribution and from knowing something about the rate at which these changes occur, we can actually map the pathways by which humans moved around the planet and how we're all related to each other. For those of us who are not geneticists, how do you identify it? How do you map it? I like to think of it as the word game, where you try to turn a single word into another word by changing a certain number of letters. What we're doing is we're starting with DNA samples in the present day, which have a certain pattern of these genetic markers. And we ask a question about how a DNA sequence, which could be a word sampled in the present day, is related to another word found another individual. How are they actually related to each other through a series of these changes? And by looking at both of those individuals, can we trace back to a point in the past at which they would have been identical? So back to a common ancestor or a coalescence as we call it. And then from that common ancestor, they descended and became 
the words or the DNA sequences we see in the present day. So how do you trace it back? We make a couple of assumptions. One is that these changes occur relatively rarely. We know that the mutations occur at a rate of roughly 30 per genome per generation. So each child that's born is carrying roughly 30 DNA mutations, which distinguish them from their parents. So changes are rare. What that means is when you're looking at the entire genome, the chances of having the same change at the same site or having the same site change in different individuals are fleetingly small. So when you see these changes, you make the assumption that they really do share common ancestry. Knowing something about the rate at which those changes occur allows us to say something about when the common ancestor of two DNA sequences that share the same change must have lived. When you say 30 per genome per generation, right. how many are there in a genome? Well, how long is a piece of string? When you look at two unrelated individuals, if you compare their DNA sequences, they differ on average at roughly one in every 1,000 nucleotides or DNA subunits throughout the entire genome. So they are 99.9% .9 identical, 0.1% different. Yet those 30 represent 30 of how many in an individual's genome? That is the process or the rate at which these changes arise every generation. But remember, we're looking at the results of those changes. We're not interested really in the process of mutation, how that occurs. We're simply interested in the changes which have occurred in the past that connect people through some pattern of relationship. So that brings it back to a common ancestor. And then what? What do you do with this data or how do you advance it forward? Number one, the first thing that pops out of the analysis is that we can get back to a common ancestor in the case of what I study, the Y chromosome a piece of DNA that doesn't go through the shuffling process that most of our genome does, and therefore it's very easy to trace back in time to these common ancestors. You can define a common ancestor for every Y chromosome, therefore every man alive today, someone you could call Adam, for lack of a better name, a single man who lived at some point in the past from whom all men get their Y chromosomes today. And that person, it turns out, lived in Africa roughly 60,000 years ago, what that means, the date isn't terribly important, except that it places everyone alive today, or everyone alive at that time, the ancestor of everyone alive today, in Africa at that point. And so within the last 60,000 years, we've left Africa, those of us who have left, and gone out and populated the world. But why that man? How did that man get his genome? Well, he obviously inherited it from someone, but we are tracing from the present, again, back into the past, at some point, we reach this coalescence point, this single individual from whom all of the genetic variation has been generated that we see today. But obviously, he had an ancestor. It's just that we don't see any direct evidence of that by looking at the diversity. The other lineages that would allow us to see back further in time have been lost. In your book, The Journey of Man, you make a number of references about the vast diversity within the African continent that is much greater than in other parts of the world. Why is that? It's because we originated in Africa as a species, and therefore we've been accumulating changes within the continent of Africa for longer. Before we started to leave? Before we started to leave and since then. Now, the length of time that's elapsed from that common ancestor, Adam in the case of the Y chromosome, to the present day is the same for everybody. So it's the same for me, or a Yanomama hunter, or a Thai boat captain, or a San hunter from southern Africa. It's the same amount of time, the same 
relatively speaking, the same number of changes for each lineage. But when some populations left Africa, it was a subset of the diversity within Africa, and the diversity which is accumulated outside of that continent is a tiny fraction of what we see within Africa, which suggests, number one, that it was a small group of people who left initially. Number two, that people within Africa have been accumulating variation for longer. And it was that subset or those subsets that you follow? Yes. The first part of my book and and the film is all about this question of origins. The real goal in this research is to explain human diversity. We look around the world and we all seem to be so different from each other, but are we really? How different are we? Do we have a common origin? And if so, how did we move around the world and populate it? So the first part of the book is really looking at this question of origins. And, And very clearly, we have a recent common origin in Africa. The rest of the book is tracing the journey that our ancestors made to go out and populate the entire planet. Then how do you explain the diversity? Good question. The short answer is we don't know for sure. There are lots of theories. Darwin, in the 1870s, posited that something known as sexual selection was playing a role, which is where people choose people to mate with based on what they find attractive, and that varies according to where you are in the world. There's a village in Romania, for instance, where I was reading in the, the Times of London last summer, uh, where all the women have mustaches. Now, I don't think this is going to become universal, but in that little corner of the world, it could go to fixation, go to a very high frequency, and become an ethnically identifiable trait, for lack of a better term. So these small local choices, summed over many generations, can produce drastic changes in appearance relatively rapidly. Now, of course, there's also adaptation to the environment. That's the thinking with skin color. We evolved in Africa, a tropical place, a lot of sunlight there, so you needed to have protection from the sunlight, from the UV rays. Therefore, having dark skin was advantageous. Now, the problem is we need to allow a little bit of UV light through the skin to produce vitamin D, to synthesize vitamin D, so that we have strong bones. Otherwise, you get children with rickets. They're not very good hunters. It is maladaptive. So as we moved into the northern hemisphere where there's less light, we had to lose some of that pigmentation, and that allowed us to make the vitamin D. So it's a combination of those sorts of forces, we think, but we've never tested it directly. The loss, then, of the pigmentation is merely a random mutation, or a marker, as you call it, that then prevails to a greater extent than those without. Right. That's the way natural selection works. The the changes themselves occur randomly. There's no rhyme or reason to where these DNA changes occur. You're simply tinkering with what you're given in the mutational lottery. So you get a mutation, and if it's advantageous, it will increase in frequency. So then we moved around the world. How did that happen, and in what order? Well, the first path that we can trace is a coastal journey to Australia. If we're all still in Africa at 60,000 years ago, which is what that common ancestors date tells us, we started to leave relatively rapidly because we see evidence of modern human presence in Australia by around 45 or 50,000 years ago. That suggests that they were following relatively easy route, a rapid route from Africa all the way across Asia to get to Australia. And we we think, based on the genetic results, that they followed a coastal route, which would have taken them along the coast of India, down through Southeast Asia, getting them to places like Lake Mungo by 45 to 50,000 years ago. And Lake Mungo is in? Western New South Wales in Australia. How did they get across the sea at the time? Or was there no sea? Coastline was certainly different because we were in the grip of an ice age, 
which had something to do with why they had left in the first place. Africa was drying out. It was probably an incentive for some of them to go and live on the coast, and once there, it would, would have been relatively easy to just move a little bit further along the coast every year. Eventually, they would have encountered a barrier of water. Australia was separate from the, the Asian landmass throughout all of this, and so they must have made a boat and, and literally sailed or paddled across to get there. Is there a thought that at that time they could see their way across, or did they just take off into the wild blue? We don't know. We have no idea. All we know is that they made it. We don't even know that they made a boat. They must have done, because by the shortest route, they would have had to cross about 60 miles of open ocean. It's unlikely that they swam, and you're talking about a population making it through because they left descendants, you know, certainly at least a family. But we don't know. Perhaps if they could have climbed up to the, the mountain that was high enough, they could have seen the nearest landmass and known that they were headed in the right direction. But that's speculation. So that was about 45,000 years ago. Right. We think the exodus was probably around 50,000 years ago. Then some of that group broke off and went north into... Well, there was a second migration, we think, again, based on the genetic results, which would have gone inland migrating along the grasslands, the savannas of eastern Africa, making it up to the Middle East by around 45,000 years ago. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Dr. Spencer Wells, a, a genetic scientist who has studied the peopling of the world. He's the author of The Journey of Man, A Genetic Odyssey. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. So the group that went to Australia was a separate group than those that went up to the Middle East. Right, yeah, they would have followed that coastal route. And again, you're able to trace these by looking at the markers on the Y chromosome. Exactly. So we trace lineages or lines of descent that connect all of these places, that connect Australians to southern India and southern Indians and Australians both back to Africa. Kind of like looking out on the branches, the small branches and twigs of a tree, going back to the larger branches down to the main trunk? Absolutely, yeah. And that is what we do. What we're doing is constructing a family tree for everyone alive today. So then tell us about this group that went up to the Middle East. Where did they go or stay in their group or break off? The thinking is that they made it to the Middle East by roughly 45,000 years ago, which correlates with the presence of the Upper Paleolithic's new method of making tools and, um, and hunting methods, which appeared suddenly around that time in the Middle East. So the Upper Paleolithic people would have been the members of the second exodus, this inland exodus from Africa. Before we get too far away, what kind of tools did they make? The tools had been the same for at least a million years. Now, if there are any anthropologists listening, I'm sure I'm, I'm making someone very angry. But if you look at the tools that were in use a million years ago and the tools that were in use in, say, Europe by the Neanderthals 50,000 years ago, they're pretty similar. I mean, it's very difficult to tell them apart. Around 50,000 years ago, first in Africa and then later spreading around the rest of the world, probably with these waves of migration, we start to see much more advanced tool types. We see the appearance of the first art. We see evidence of specific hunting methods where they began to focus on particular species, seasonal migrations. They become more efficient hunters. All in all, it argues for a change in the way they were leading their lives, a change in their culture. And it could have had something to do with the development of fully modern language around that time 
or perhaps a change in the way the brain worked, which allowed them to become more creative. We don't know what it was, but it suggests a break with the past, a mental break with the past, which led to fully modern human culture. And we think that's what would have allowed them to go out and successfully populate the world. Do you think that this break with the past, either in language or brain development, again, was a genetic mutation? Yeah, I think it would have had to have been genetic. We don't know how many changes would have been involved. Language is a complex thing. It's very likely that Neanderthals and other human ancestors, hominid ancestors, had rudimentary forms of language. We don't know what form that genetic change would have taken, but yes, it's very likely that it was a single or perhaps a few changes which led to this final great leap forward, as Jared Diamond has called it. It's interesting to contemplate that the genetic change came with one person, a male or female. Yes. And it would be that person's offspring that would inherit that change and then begin to converse generations later. Absolutely. And that is the way natural selection works. You get these changes occurring in a single individual. They leave offspring who are more likely to survive, so they have a selective advantage. And before you know it, suddenly everyone is like that. They're related to that one individual. So then during this period, the Upper Paleolithic period, people are arriving in the Middle East. Yes, and they're carrying this advanced culture in tow. And we think that they followed the grasslands from the Middle East into Central Asia simply because the grasslands extend from the Middle East up into Central Asia. And surprisingly, the genetic evidence points to the major wave of migration into Europe coming not directly out of the Middle East, but from a population that lived in Central Asia 35 to 40,000 years ago on the steppes. And again, do we have any indicators as to why they went west? Well, a few of them would have gone directly west or northwest out of the Middle East. But the evidence from the genetic data is that there weren't huge numbers of people entering Europe directly out of the Middle East at 45,000 years ago. Certainly archaeologically, we don't see any evidence of that. The main wave of migration of modern humans and, and upper Paleolithic culture into Europe occurs only after about 38,000 years ago. Most of them arrived probably around 35,000 years ago. Wow. So there's a 10,000-year gap between the date when the Middle East was first settled by these African migrants and the date at which most of them entered Europe. And it's, it's always been difficult to explain that gap because Europe and the Middle East are relatively close. And we presume that that arrival took three to 4,000 years. Yeah, and the evidence is from the genetics, again, surprisingly, that they moved out of the Middle East along these grasslands into Central Asia, and from there, following what we call a steppe highway or a grassland highway, which extends even today all the way across the continent of Eurasia, from Central Europe all the way across to Korea, they would have been able to follow this grassland into Europe from Central Asia. Then other people followed in a northeasterly direction towards Siberia. Right. And this same Central Asian population that gave rise to European, that gave rise to that migration into Europe around 35,000 years ago, also gave rise to a migration up into Siberia. And within the past 20,000 years, across the Bering Land Bridge and into the Americas. Before we get to that crossing of the Bering Land Bridge, what would be the reasons why there would be different facial features in people of the Far East versus the people of Europe? We don't know. My personal bias is that it is sexual selection. It's this force that Darwin identified. 
It is local populations making choices about what traits they favored in their mates. In other words, there was a change or a mutation and somebody liked it and that became popular. Yeah, that is my guess. That was Darwin's guess. I think it's probably the best guess we have at the moment. What are some of the other thoughts? People have tried to talk about you know, certain facial features in East Asia as being adaptations to cold climates. I don't know that that's necessarily true. There have been a lot of migrations in East Asia from the south to the north. It's quite possible that some of the features we think of as being East Asian arose first in the south and then migrated up to the north. In that case, it's very difficult to argue that they're cold adaptations. We simply don't know. So those that live in what we now call Siberia, Eastern Asia, that's about twenty to 25,000 years ago when they arrived? Yeah, yeah, roughly 20,000 years ago. And then some of them, and you indicate a group potentially as few as 10 individuals, crossed the Bering landmass. Right, and that's from looking at the number of genetic lineages that we see in the Americas on both the male and female sides. And you can account for all of the extant diversity, all the diversity you see today, in the Americas with as few as perhaps 10 individuals. How do you reduce it to 10? Well, there just aren't that many genetic lineages in the Americas. Genetic diversity in the Americas is a tiny fraction of what you see in Asia, which in turn is a tiny fraction of what you see in Africa. So there have been a series of what we call genetic bottlenecks leading from sub-Saharan Africa into Asia, on into Central Asia, on up to Siberia, and then eventually into the Americas. And so when you get to the Americas, there's actually very little genetic diversity or genetic differences between people. Going back to the time before these people crossed the Bering landmass, wasn't the Ice Age still covering a much greater landmass then than now? It was, and certainly they would have seen glaciers on the trip, but we now know that the Bering Land Bridge itself is not covered in an ice mass, and so they would have probably lived in the Bering Strait or on that Bering Land Bridge at 15,000 years ago. Now, it's likely that when they got over to Alaska, they would have encountered a giant sheet of ice, and it's possible that they hung around in Alaska until the ice age started to abate, and these ice sheets started to recede, and you know, perhaps there was an ice-free corridor, as the, the climatologists call it, that opened up, allowing them down into the southern part of North America, down into the plains of what are today the United States. We don't know exactly how that occurred, but it is possible that they were blocked from entering America initially by a sheet of ice across most of Canada. What kind of time frame are we looking at? The genetic data is very, very clear. We've identified a marker recently, which we call M242. The number doesn't mean anything. It's the order in which we discovered the marker. So it's the 242nd marker that we've found. But we've identified one recently which could have arisen, or did arise rather, in Asia only within the last... 20,000 years. It's distributed across Asia. We see it in eastern Iran and southern India, and it's at highest frequency in southern Siberia. But that is the immediate ancestor of the oldest wave of migration into the Americas, that very first settlement. If it arose in southern Siberia, for instance, 20,000 years ago, that means they couldn't have been in the Americas prior to that. How do you gather this data? We actually have to go out and meet the people We do a lot of traveling, and we take blood samples. We talk to them about the work we're doing. We explain that what we're effectively trying to do is decipher a history book that they're carrying written in their DNA, study their family history and their group history, and fit everybody into this global family tree of humanity. We take a blood sample, take it back to the lab, isolate the DNA from that, and then look at these specific markers. 
the blood sample is more telling than a swab of the inside of the cheek? No, you get DNA out of both of them. It's just that you get much more DNA from a blood sample. And given that it's quite difficult to get to some of these places, it's, in my opinion, at least worth going to the extra effort of collecting blood. How do you communicate with these people? Uh, <laughs> well, you need, you need to have an interpreter. There are roughly some 6,000 languages spoken around the world today, so I certainly can't speak all of them. <laughs> Obviously, some people are not interested in participating in the study. I'm a geneticist. It's not my role to strong-arm anyone into being a participant, or I'm certainly not going to go out and uh, change their perception of who they are, contradict their myths or their creation stories about how they got to where they're living today. All I can do is explain the work we're doing and hope that they'll find it interesting, and most people do. Do you find that they share with you their creation stories? Yeah, they do, and it's really interesting to listen to some of these stories and imagine ways in which the genetics can confirm them or complement them. Well, that's what I'm asking. That's where I'm going is, do you find that the genetics confirm the creation stories? Well, in some cases they do, but in most cases they don't, because most people around the world, certainly most indigenous populations, like to think that they have always lived where they live today. Connection to the land, which is fantastic. It's something that those of us who live in Western society have lost to a large extent. For instance, the Chukchi a group living in eastern Siberia that I've done some work with, have a fantastic creation story about Raven, their great god, who is living in the world when it's engulfed in darkness. And Raven pierces a hole in this wall of, of darkness, and the rays of the sun shine through for the first time. And into these rays of sunlight, he drops seal bones. And those seal bones assume human form. And so that's how the first man and the first woman appeared. And so they're intimately connected to the animals and to the place and to the natural world. Fantastic creation story, but it does imply that they've always been living where they're living today. Not everyone can be right about that. We came from somewhere. It turns out that that somewhere is Africa. So we've mostly migrated to these places. But it is interesting to listen to those stories and imagine ways in which the genetics could conceivably confirm what they're saying. How about language? How is genetics related to language diversity? In addition to inheriting your genes from your parents, you tend to get the language you speak as well. Language can be a proxy for genetics. You can use linguistics to define genetic groups. It doesn't always agree, though. Many people around the world today speak English. Many of them speak English as a first language, even though genetically they don't come from England. So it's very interesting to use linguistic patterns to confirm the genetic data and vice versa, but also to look at instances where they don't agree and try to infer something about the patterns of social change. But that's more cultural than genetic. You have to look at every piece of data. You can't simply look at the genes. You have to put the genetic data in context. We don't limit ourselves to studying genes. We have to take into account the archaeological record, the historical record, the climatological record, the linguistic record, etc. Well, Spencer Wells, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. I've just finished reading No Logo by Naomi Klein, which is part of some research I'm doing for a book that I'm doing in the past, the present, and the future. Fantastic book, and I think it really forces us to step back as consumers, as members of a consumer-oriented society, and ask about the underlying reason for what we're doing. You're talking about the impact on the environment earlier. You know, I think it's all tied in together, and we need to think very seriously about restructuring some of the aspects of our society before it's too late. 
you know, before we lose too many species or before the, the world becomes too polluted or before global warming becomes too big of an issue. Spencer Wells, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks for having me, Barry. Dr. Spencer Wells is the author of The Journey of Man and the presenter of the science film by the same name. The book he recommends is No Logo by Naomi Klein. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707 621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.